Hello and welcome to our Maritime Impact podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Nyhus, Director Environment for Maritime at the DNB. Throughout this series, we've been discussing how maritime greenhouse gas regulations are evolving, in particular what the EU and the IMO are doing. And in the previous season, we've also analyzed what it all means for some specific ship segments. In this episode, we're going to lift our gaze a bit, and we're going to talk about the implications for the shipping market in a broader sense. I'm joined by Jakub Valenkiewicz, our principal market analyst, to talk about how the ongoing regulatory actions are going to impact the shipping markets. We hope you enjoy the episode, and now on to the show. Jakub, welcome to the show. Great to have you on board. Thank you very much, Eric. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, always good to talk to colleagues in this uh, more informal setting as well, not just doing regulations in a formal setting. So uh, this will be fun. Uh, in, in just a few weeks' time, we have the next tranche of IMO greenhouse gas regulations kicking in, you know, the CEXI, the CII, and the SEMP. Uh, and just to remind our listeners, uh, the EEXI, it's a one-off energy efficiency standard being applied to existing ships. The CII, it's an operational energy efficiency requirement with steadily tightening requirements. It's being applied to all ships and it's going to be around for a long time. And we have the SEMP, which essentially is a management plan for dealing with the CII. So, so Jakob, I mean, these are significant changes. And how do you see the market implications of these things happening now? Uh, well, that is certainly a million-dollar question. Uh, both measures, EXI and CII, aim towards reduced energy consumption. However, I believe that the outcome will widely depend on the combination of not only regulations, but also the prevailing market conditions. So concerning EXI, as you mentioned, the one-off exercise, we are looking into a scenario where some 20 to 30% of the fleet may be affected, thus indeed being forced to take some mitigating actions. In an overwhelming majority, those measures will be the engine power limitations known as EPLs, they will force ships to trade at lower speeds and to stay in compliance. However, you know, just because you need to reduce your power, that no, doesn't necessarily mean that it will change the way you trade these days. Because when we look at the operational profiles of the ships, they operate at lower than the than they design speeds and sometimes considerably slower, which means that EEXI will only prohibit them from increasing the speed rather than changing anything in the current operational behavior. Conversely, CII is a much bigger elephant in the room as it depends on your emissions, regardless of your EXI score. So whichever, whichever score we talk about, it will depend on how much fuel you use and how you operate your ship. In addition, one needs to bear in mind that every year this ranking will be more strict and will force continued effort to increase energy efficiency and introduce cleaner and perhaps carbon neutral fuels to maintain the CII ranking. Uh, from the commercial point of view, that outcome is relatively simple to predict. You know, both measures incentivize slow steaming and thus reduce the fleet's productivity, and that will positively boost earnings. How positive it remains to be seen, but the mechanism could be reminiscent of what happened during COVID pandemic, if you remember, when we experienced massive disruptions of the supply chains, you know, resulting in all sort of port congestions and delays. And, you know, it's, it is surprising, but it only takes a few percent of the fleet that is trapped somewhere uh, and the rates actually go through the roof. Uh, however, the current bleak economic outlook 
in this outlook, I would not expect similar earnings bonanza. If anything, these regulations may only offer a bit of soft cushioning, I should say, as we enter the economic down cycle. All in all, to be honest, I'm not too worried about slow steaming. I have to tell you, I'm more concerned about whether or not we're heading towards a two-tier market, which will depend on your CIR ranking. Uh, we can safely say that the better CII ranking, it will trigger higher costs for the owners and ultimately it will increase the break-even levels. And those break-even levels are basically your OPEX and CAPEX. So installing energy efficiency solutions will definitely drive your CAPEX up, whereas increased maintenance will subsequently drive your OPEX. It will ultimately make your ship less desirable for the charters. Well, the big cargo owners seem to be convinced to put their money where their mouth is, being committed to hiring more efficient ships and paying premium rates. But what about the rest of the fleet? What really makes you choose the B-rated vessels over the D or E-rated one? And this is the question that our clients actually keep asking all the time. And perhaps you can share your views a little bit, Eric, about those the, the enforcement of CII in particular. Because, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, not long time ago when we had enforcement of Alas Water Management or a Sulfur Cap, we were widely discussing those issues of, of enforcement. And it doesn't seem to be that apparent at the moment when it comes to CII. So what's your take on it? Yeah, you're, you're right. absolutely right, Jakob. CII enforcement, it's not exactly robust. Uh, well, at least not at the moment or initially. Now, what we know is going to happen here um, is, of course, that the first couple of years is that if you get an E, you'll be obliged to prepare this corrective action plan as part of an updated SEMP Part 3. You'll need to have it approved and then implement it. And if you nevertheless get the second E, the legal consequences... Uh, of that is essentially a rinse and repeat exercise. There are n no further legal consequences. You, you do the corrective action plan once once again. Now, <clears throat> of course, in the in the real world, uh, th things are never quite that simple uh, because, well, first and foremost, uh, the enforcement mechanism, the legal as parts of it, will be reviewed in 2025 based on the experience we'll be gaining in 23 and 24. Uh, in, you know, my, my bet is that if we see an obvious and called willful disregard of the requirements at an extended uh, scale, that will have direct impact on how the IMO tightens enforcement because it, they're going to be looking at this, obviously. Uh, so it's difficult to speculate what exactly that will look like, but uh, experience over the next couple of years will inform the decisions being made in 25. And secondly, of course, as you mentioned as well, there, there are commercial implications, uh, and they can in principle be felt quickly. If charters start signaling that they'll not take D or E ships, and we are getting those signals partly already. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a, a poor rating will have commercial implications. But and, and this brings us back into your bailiwick, really, because how this is going to play out is kind of uncertain. Because you know, if the market is tight, uh, I don't think D or E ships will have any trouble getting cargo at all. Now, if there's an oversupply, th th then there's a different situation. So, oh, precisely. So, so how that plays out? Uh, it, it's this interaction of market and regulations, and you know, we, we have muddy crystal balls. Uh, all, all of us. And, you know, talking of muddy crystal, crystal balls, it really brings us to another issue. Because, you know, when we listen to this steady buzz in the shipping community, there seems to be a, a lot of people that believe that this 
combined pressure, the explicit regulatory requirements, a longer-term need for better-performing vessels, etc., etc., it's going to drive more scrapping. And this is something I know you have some views on. So, can you let us, let us know how you think about scrapping in this context? Yes, scrapping. Yeah, that's that's my favorite question these days. And a lot of people basically ask the same thing. And you know, and rightly, when reading headlines, you know, one may conclude that scrapping has massively increased, driven by regulations. And also, what scares me is that people be, think that we began scrapping younger vessels, just like fifteen years old, and and that could be more wrong. In fact, if you look at the trend over the past 10 years, you know, it's been quite the opposite. And it's worth mentioning that recently, you know, the scrap prices were as high as 700 US dollars per ton, which is the historically highest. And still, it didn't trigger any, any scrapping whatsoever. It only shows that the regulations are still yet to make impact in this area. As of now, it's not the regulation, but it's the market conditions that continue to drive scrapping. That's it. And, you know, I have seen several models, you know, forecasting models that overappreciate scrapping for that reason and subsequently overestimated the expected future contracting of new ships. And I will be really careful when claiming that regulations drive increased scrapping already. Uh, although such an assumption makes logical sense, it undermines, in my view, several other factors such as prevailing market conditions, new building prices, access to capital, or even available slots in shipyards. And, you know, I think in all honesty, when was the last time regulations changed shipping overnight, right? <laughs> So <clears throat> uh, it does not mean that I don't believe uh, in that scenario. It, it will eventually happen. Uh, we are most likely looking into a much elevating scrapping scenario in the second part of the current decades. And yes, CII will be one of the major drivers. But in my view, just as you said, not before 2025. Uh, as for older ships, your ranking obtained in 2023 doesn't change much in the first few years. And if the markets eventually change against you, you will simply remove the vessel from the trade uh, after a few years. And in addition, we also need to remember that it's physically impossible to remove all substandard ships in one go. There is not enough space in the scrapyards, and not to mention it would drive scrap prices to rock bottom, you know, stripping owners of millions of dollars in the residual value of their hulls. So things take time, and particularly in shipping, I would say. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're spot on here. And as, as we, we know, of course, whenever the IMO at least uh, adopts regulations, they never uh, do so intending to drive ships out of business immediately. It's always a long-term uh, change, uh, changeover period, if you will. But we do, of course, have more than just the IMO and the IMO's immediate regulatory stuff happening. Um, you mentioned uh, elephants in the room. I'm going to talk about the 500-pound gorilla, uh, <laughs> the EU, uh, where, where, where we have to look at the emissions trading systems that we expect to become effective from 2024. Uh, we have a greenhouse gas fuel intensity standard, the so-called fuel EU maritime, kicking in from 2025 that we fully expect to go through. And while these will work in different ways, they do make the regulatory environment tougher and they make compliance harder for ships trading on Europe than for those staying away. And what I get a lot when briefing customers is a kind of immediate, I'll stay the heck away from Europe kind of reaction. 
Um, now, it, it may be a bit overblown and more an emotional immediate reaction, but still, do you think we'll see these kind of market consequences? Will we see segmentation of the world into EU compliant and non-EU compliant? And will we see knock-on charter rate implications coming out of that? How, how do you think about that? <laughs> you know, stay the heck out of Europe. I like this one. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's easier said than done, you know. And suppose you can stay away from a market that contributes like 30% in oil, 20% in container, 10% in bulk, and well, as much as 30% in LNG seabond trade. Well, if you can stay away from that, then good luck to you. But I think it really depends on what sort of a trade you're involved in and what size of ships you operate. Uh, perhaps you stand a better chance of fulfilling such a promise in the dry bulk segment but you know if you're in a container or a tanker business things may get complicated and it will be gradually more difficult to avoid europe but you know it would help if you look from a tonnage provider perspective and also the competitive edge of your assets you know so what, what happens you end up with a ship with trade limitations that's automatically a less less attractive one and ergo having lower earnings potential and even if you accept such a handicap, uh, think from a global point of view. What will happen to the rates to Europe once everyone decides to stay the hack out, to, to quote you? You immediately create a two-tier market, and this limited, let's call it, Europe-capable tonnage will become horribly expensive for the charters. And at the same time, access of ships elsewhere because they will be repositioned, will drive earnings down for them. So even if you stay out of Europe, you still risk being kicked out of the market anyway. And the next thing you will then have to consider is who on earth is going to finance an asset with limited scope of employment? And, and for the existing vessels, it might result in a reduced asset value, which will negatively influence your balance sheet. Uh, I guess we are going back to the question of enforcement here, which in my view is critical for any regulation. Uh, it, we are very likely to create a multi-tier markets if we don't have a sort of near level playing fields. Well, you mentioned ETS, and in my view, like probably everyone else, the ETS will pass the cost on to the end consumer uh, as somebody needs to compensate for the increased fuel costs. When you mention fuel EU, we are essentially talking about the life cycle assessment of fuels, <clears throat> which is a challenge on its own. You know, if, even if you leave problems like, you know, sustainable amounts of biomass or availability of renewable energy to produce, you know, e-fuels, carbon neutral fuels, how do you make sure that what is available for bankering is in fact a proper green fuel? And here comes the challenge of certification of fuels, you know, even if, if it's all in place, it is really hard to imagine that such fuels would be widely available worldwide, and at least not in the near future. Well, in my view, it may actually trigger a similar to aviation certificate trading mechanism that you purchase your green fuel in one location whenever this is available, and then claim the environmental benefit of using it elsewhere. I'm not entirely sure whether this is permitted or will be permitted within the EU uh, markets, but at least certainly it is a possibility. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the book and claim mechanism there, and we do see a lot of interest and also a lot of interest in shipping companies. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more about book and claim also at the IMO um, in, in the discussions we're heading into. And, you know, that kind of brings us to the longer term stuff as well, because we do know that the IMO is going to be tightening its decarbonization goals next year. Um, we don't quite rightly know to what extent, but it will certainly go beyond the present 
strategic ambitions of 50% uh, reduction by 2050. Um, we do expect to see consensus on the need, at least, for both an international carbon price in some shape or color, be it levy or ETS or whatever. Uh, there will be something happening there, and also along with a global greenhouse gas intensity fuel standard, kind of mirroring what the EU is thinking about. And while it'll take some time to get consensus for all of this, uh, get the legal language in place and to see a clear timeline for entry into force, etc., etc., this will have some long-term consequences as far as I can see, at least. Um, So I guess the question I'm asking is really, what kind of market impact can we expect in the longer term here? And not just the short one, two-year horizon, but looking towards, say, the end of the decade, maybe even beyond. Yeah, I think now we are getting into a philosophical part of the podcast because with the number of unknowns you've just listed, you know, my guess is just as good as yours. And uh, and I would certainly be happy if IMO could enforce the current regulations well enough before coming up with more proposals. Uh, Sometimes I get a feeling, you know, that people tend to believe that regulations themselves will fix the, the decarbonization problem. But, I mean, like it or not, it will eventually boil down to money and profit margins because how else would you like to stay in the market anyway? You know, in our recently published Maritime Forecast to 2050 report, we stressed that no sector could decarbonize itself alone, and particularly such a hard-to-abate sector like the shipping industry. <clears throat> and in, in this report, we looked into what is the additional cost of installing energy efficiency measure uh, as well as adopting vessels to new fuels such as you know ammonia or methanol, and our model suggested you know an additional annual expenditure between eight to twenty eight billion dollars, depending on which scenario you're looking at. And as you know, we we came out with quite a few of those. Um, and just to give you a quick reference, what eight to twenty eight million dollars billion dollars is, you know, the average investment for new ships is in the range historically between 40 and 140 billion US dollars. So whichever way you like, the decarbonization will add roughly 20% extra to the bill. But I mean, this is really just the tip of the mountain here because when you start to look into what is necessary to develop in the onshore infrastructure, where you need to think about how are you going to produce, how are you going to distribute, and eventually how are you going to deliver those new fuels to shipping, that's an entire new number. And that new number is a whopping 30 to 90 billion US dollars every year invested in new infrastructure. And I, I think it will be a monumental task to ensure that all those players are synchronized in their investment efforts so that onboard technology as well as the land infrastructure are in place when needed. So who's going to drive that change? Well, I suppose it has to come from the big boys, you know, you know, such as cargo owners, you know, capital providers, large ship owners and pool operators. You know, only such organizations will have enough financial space or firepower, if you like, uh, to drive the cost that costs, basically costs billions of dollars. You know, it requires a long-term commitment, uh, persistence to achieve the common goal. Small and medium-sized owners really won't stand a chance to drive this process alone. I don't think so, you know. And uh, perhaps we'll see some further consolidation in shipping. Yeah, that is definitely possible. There is there is a lot to consolidate in shipping because this size will undoubtedly matter eventually. Although, for example, I wouldn't really expect the shipping industry to get anywhere close to aviation when it comes to consolidation. You know, the more we work with decarbonization, uh, the more we realize that we are likely heading towards a multi-fuel future. Uh, That's the keyword is flexibility here. 
where you can switch between fuels when the time is right. But unfortunately, due to a sheer variety of options, you, you cannot have an engine that will basically take all those fuels or will be capable of taking any fuel you like. However, you have the opportunity to go for dual fuel engines, which to some extent will mitigate the risk of your vessel becoming a stranded asset. You know, the stranded asset is the current buzzword to scare the life out of ship owners, right? Uh, but just look at the existing order book. We definitely see things happening over there, particularly in 2022. We see now that over 30% of the entire tonnage ordered currently with the shipyards has dual fuel engines installed. The vast majority, of course, is LNG and diesel, which perhaps does not entirely fix the carbon dioxide problem in the long run, but it's certainly a tangible solution, not only from the engineering point of view, but it's also financially viable, let's be honest. You know, Jakob, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, and if I were to try to summarize what you've been telling me, I mean, you've been very, very clear in your messaging here, is that we're really not seeing much market impact happening yet. Uh, but we can expect that to change as the decarbonization efforts really start to bite. But I kind of note a tone of caution here in a sense, in that, you know, we, and it's a very human thing, really. We tend to overestimate immediate impacts of changes and underestimate long-term consequences of whatever disruptive event hits us. Uh, would, you, would you agree with that kind of helicopter view on this? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Eric. Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't just say that it doesn't take any sort of difference to the market because uh, all we talk these days is decarbonization and certainly changes the whole environment, you know, for how are you going to invest into the future? I mean, this is definitely the problem number one for shipping. It, it just, I mean, what I'm trying to say in the short term, as you as you pointed, it, it doesn't seem to have a much of an effect just yet, but, but it certainly is going to be a huge game changer. Uh, but w- what we need to really remember, you know, Markets are, you know, driven by relatively simple principles, you know, supply and demand, you know, but the, but, but the problem is they have, you know, a lot of moving parts, a lot of changing and constantly changing elements. And that's what really makes it complicated and thus indeed very difficult to predict. Yeah, well, you know, as someone said, uh, uh, fear and greed uh, in a more colloquial sense, I guess. Now, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) uh, Before I let you go, you know, um, I'm curious, and uh, I would assume that our listeners are too. I mean, where can we get regular market insights from you? I've heard that you are going to host a new podcast, not podcast, but vodcast. So congratulations on that, on the Maritime Impact uh, next year. And what can people expect to learn there? And what will it look like? Well, indeed, you've heard right. Yes, we're planning a, a video cast. I think that's what you should call it in in uh, in 2023, and and of course that will be entirely dedicated to the both global economy and how that impacts shipping. So I guess we'll try to run it quarterly, and where you can expect you know all the market developments that drive shipping, and you may definitely expect you know the decent supply of numbers and figures, you know market commentaries, and as well as you know exciting interviews with some well recognized and well accomplished guests from the industry so i i guess if you're interested you know just stay tuned as i think we plan to launch our first episode already as early as in january that sounds great jacob and uh, really looking forward to it uh, thank you so much for spending time with us today really grateful and appreciative uh, of that and uh, you know maybe we'll have you back on uh, sometime next year to see what's happening then thank you very much eric i look forward to it Thank you for joining us for this episode. You've been listening to the Maritime Impact podcast from DNV with me, Eric Nyus. 
We will be returning in January with another episode assessing the outcome of MEBC 79. Here you'll be hearing the latest updates on the negotiations we've been discussing throughout the series. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to give us a rating or a review. Thank you for listening.